everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot a film and television podcast in which we talk about a topic that changes from episode to episode i'm edwin davis uh, and this is a special mini-sode of the podcast in which i'll be counting down the top 10 best picture winners by which i mean i'm going to rank the 10 best films to ever win best picture and uh, that was always my intention for this this episode that was the main point of this you know it being the day after the oscars being handed out and you know, most likely the kind of the coronation of La La Land, but who knows? Could be, could be a surprise. Maybe, maybe a rival will sneak it in. Um, if if a rival does do it, I think that would probably be the least likely outcome in at least the last four months of of things to happen that people didn't expect to happen. But as as much as you know, that is my intended. But the the reason I wanted to do this, uh, the plans have been slightly changed by the fact that this morning news broke that Bill Paxton has died and. Uh, and so I thought that you know that w- I would have to kind of say a few words about about Bill Paxton. Uh, one of the, the 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 few remaining positive things about social media, uh, and and you know the, the, in the moment in the current climate, as they say, is that when an artist dies, uh, it's a allows people en masse to express their love and affection for for that artist and for their work. And it's especially nice for artists like Bill Paxton, who are not kind of iconic and universally known in the way that someone like a David Bowie or a Prince is, but who you know have achieved a certain degree of success. Obviously, Bill Paxton was in a lot of really successful movies, particularly in his work with, with James Cameron in things like Aliens and obviously Titanic, one of the most successful movies of all time. And besides that, he was also the lead in Twister, which was a hugely successful movie in its own right. But he, you know, he's not quite on that same level where absolutely everyone in the world, I say in inverted commas, but, you know, as someone who has the sort of the name recognition and and facial recognition of of a huge swathe of the audience. He he was a character actor who appeared in a lot of movies over the course of his of his 30, 40 year career, but not wouldn't necessarily be a household name. I guess I'm saying, but he was in a lot of movies that were deeply loved by film lovers, particularly film lovers of a certain generation. Anyone who grew up watching the work that he did in the 80s, you know, from from things like Weird Science and, and Aliens, which is, you know, kind of two, two really good movies, particularly Aliens. Aliens is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, it was number one the week that I was born in 1986. So I watch it every year on my birthday as kind of a nice little little tradition. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he was in a lot of movies that mean a lot to a lot of people that were part of people's childhoods and and that they grew up loving but but even in kind of the years since then particularly in the last couple of years where he has become a reliable character actor showing up in a reliable supporting player showing up in in movies big and small you know if you look at something like two years ago edge of tomorrow a a kind of a hugely enjoyable sci-fi movie in which he was an undoubted highlight showing up as the basically the, the the officer who trains very briefly Tom Cruise to get murdered over and over again over the course of the movie and sports an amazing mustache just kind of a wonderful presence in the movie or Nightcrawler where he shows up as a very different sort of character you know not 
kind of bullish and and brash, just kind of a sleazebag. And he was the sort of person like his Twister co-star, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who just showed up in a movie and you knew, and would just kind of walk away with every scene he was in. You knew as soon as his name rolled up in the credits that you were going to have something, something interesting and fun was going to happen. And the, the, the litany of credits that he has in things like One False Move or A Simple Plan, a, a wonderful movie that he starred in, which was directed by Sam Raimi. He could just do do wonderful works, particularly as a lead, which he didn't get to do very often. But, you know, any any time he was in a movie, you just knew you were seeing you were going to have a good time because he was he had his own kind of weird interesting presence something that he really that was really conveyed every time that he showed up in something he was he was distinctive in the way that a lot of great character actors are you know maybe a little too off kilter to ever be a leading man but you know someone who was just kind of reliably great all the time and and even though he was he never got nominated for an oscar and you know wasn't really the sort of actor who necessarily would because he seemed to be drawn more to kind of genre movies and than the sort of unshowy roles that that don't get a lot of oscar love he obviously meant a lot to a lot of people and that has been represented in the the outpourings of shock and love over over his death at the the very very young age of of 61 and and in any case when an actor dies at that age and it is it is very young when you're talking about a profession where people can and often do continue working well into their their 80s you know if you're talking about someone like Hal Holbrook or or uh, Emmanuel Reaver who also kind of passed away recently you uh, when when someone dies you are instantly struck by the the loss of the movies that they didn't get to make and the roles that we won't get to see them play and with someone like Bill Paxton that's that's doubly sad because he was such a unique and distinctive presence in in every movie he was in that you just know he would have made a fucking great old weird dude showing up in movies and you know maybe someone who in eventually would would get some kind of honorary oscar just for a, a kind of a hugely impressive body of work and and for being iconic in small roles and, and great in lead roles and you know it's, it's, it's a really terrible shame to lose him but and, but but there's obviously the great work that he has done in the past you know I, i'm i'm a huge fan of a simple plan i think he's he's absolutely incredible in that kind of little dark incredibly bleak crime movie one of sam raimi's best and a great performance by billy bob thornton in a kind of supporting role uh, and you know also when when someone dies you also get you get a sense of what movies they made really meant a lot to people. Like, I've seen roughly a thousand people say How Good Frailty is, the movie that he starred in and, and directed in the early 2000s, which is a movie that I'd, I'd known about for a while but never actually seen. It's always kind of been on my radar. So, I mean, it. I wish that it didn't take his death to make me kind of seek it out more forcefully and to try and actually see it. But uh, it was nice uh, in amongst the, the 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 feelings of shock and sadness over his passing, to see a lot of people saying to people, you know, you really need to see this because he was really really great in it, and it clearly meant a lot to him. Uh, and so uh, it did, you know, it, it's a hugely sad thing to lose someone like like Bill Paxton. So rest in peace. So from that, we'll go on to something a little more kind of silly and frivolous uh, to kind of give you some of that good internet content that people like these days. I'm gonna list what I think, personally, based on an incredibly scientific and systematically worked out system, which is that I looked at the films and decided which ones were the best. What the 
10 best films to ever win best picture at the academy awards are and and that is very different it has to be said from the best films to ever be nominated for best picture because i think anyone who follows the oscars closely and and this was brought up in last week's episode with zoe jays when we talked about this year's oscar nominees the films that are nominated for the oscars and the films that win are often not the best films of a given year and you know that's a a perception that maybe as a younger film fan i certainly had because when you look at a film and it says that it won best picture you instantly make it a priority and the kind of the the list of best picture winners becomes kind of a a checklist that you want to kind of work your way through um, which i think certainly from a film history point of view is interesting because you get to see what movies really struck a chord with at least the academy when they came out maybe not necessarily the culture at the time but um, is not necessarily that they are in some cases not the best representation of what was actually the best movie that year you know the, the classic example of course being something like Citizen Kane losing to How Green Was My Valley. Now How Green Is My Valley is a very lovely picturesque uh, film from from John Ford but it's not Citizen Kane which like literally rewrote the book on how you shot and assembled a movie and how movie how, how cinematic storytelling could unfurl and how stories could be told in the medium so you know, there's the, the the Oscars get it wrong more often than they get it right, I guess I'm saying. And and I think for most film fans, you do go through a period where initially you think, oh, if a film gets nominated for Best Picture or wins, then you have to seek it out. And then, you know, later on, it kind of flips entirely. And you think if a movie comes nominated for Best Picture, it must be kind of stayed and boring and kind of stolid and not particularly interesting, but designed in a certain way to please the very relatively very small number of people who are in the academy and who as as we know from the last couple of years tends to be a fairly homogenous group in terms of gender and race uh you know they and and they tend to go for kind of very boring staid picks and occasionally they'll nominate something crazy like mad max fury road which is incredible when it happens but for the most part you get kind of very boring movies so so it's a my basic what i'm saying is that when you pick from the 88 current films that have been nominated for best picture you're not necessarily picking from the best crop of movies you're sometimes just picking from movies that are merely okay and that is i think the case for about 70 of the movies that have won best picture they are good they are occasionally bad occasionally very good but generally on average they are okay so in fact making this list was surprisingly easy um, I was able to pull it up to a long list of about 15 movies and then I just had to winnow that list of 15 down to 10 which uh, I have managed to do with some consternation and uh, just to rattle off the five that were cut who uh, you'll consider honourable mentions I suppose were Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part 2 Robert Redford's Ordinary People Shut Up, It's Good It's Not Raging Bull, Yes, But It's Good John G. Alvidson's Rocky, again, it's good. <laughs> um, it's not a network, but it's good. And Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Great movie. Just got missed the cutoff, um, it has to be said. Uh, and also, um, I'm I'm making this list before the Oscars uh, a ceremony, so just for the record, if La La Land wins Best Picture, it would not make the top ten for me. If Moonlight somehow wins Best Picture, it'd be close. It might just sneak in there, but based on the current 88 movies that have won Best Picture, these were the 10 best, in my opinion. 
Okay, and so we'll start off with number 10, which is Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, released in 1991. You're not real FBI, are you? I'm still in training at the Academy. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm -hmm. That is rather slippery of you, Agent Starling. 1991 is a really interesting movie year when you look at the movies that were nominated for Best Picture. Obviously, you have Silence of the Lambs, which was the only the second horror movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture, I believe, after The Exorcist, and the only one to ever win. You know, it's a genre that is tends to be ignored by the Academy, except in very occasionally like production elements when you're looking at like um, production design or or sound and things like that or effects. Generally not something that gets paid attention to by the Academy. You had Beauty and the Beast, the first movie, animated movie ever to be nominated for Best Picture. You had uh, Barry Levinson's Bugsy, kind of a, a spiky gangster drama. You had, uh, based on, you know, the, the life of Bugsy Siegel. You had JFK, Oliver Stone's kind of fever dream of conspiracy theories. And you had Prince of Tides, the, the Barbara Streisand movie, which are... You know, of those five, you know, Bugsy is the only one that you kind of think conforms to the idea of a traditional Best Picture nominee because it's a period movie. It's about a real person. It takes place in a a genre that historically the Academy tends to like, which is the gangster genre. Everything else is kind of atypical, and uh, and the fact that that Science of the Lambs won is even more atypical because it's again a genre that the Academy ignores kind of fully at least animated movies tend to just do well in things like original song you know it always had that to kind of lean its its it lean against until the 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 2000s when they introduced the award for best animated feature uh, and i think also it says something about the quality of of the movies nominated that even though i do think that Silence of the Lambs is the 10th best movie to ever win Best Picture, and I think it's incredible. I think it's a wonderful work of... Uh, of uh, It's a, a wonderful film by Jonathan Demme, who made a lot of wonderful movies. And, you know, Jodie Foster's amazing in it. Anthony Hopkins is at his kind of campy best as, as Hannibal Lecter, as the second best uh, iteration of the character, after, of course, Maz Mikkelsen, who is incredible on Hannibal uh, and in life. <laughs> but is, is really great as Hannibal Lecter on, on NBC's Hannibal. Even though... You know, it has all those things in its favour. I'm still really mad that it lost to Beauty and the Beast, which I think is just such an, an incredible piece of work, uh, soon to be kind of boulderized by Disney themselves. But, you know, the, that that is, says something about the quality of that movie, even though the movie that won was incredible uh, and is, you know, just this wonderfully tense, hugely influential uh, movie about serial killers. You know, like, it's very hard to see any... TV show or movie made in the years since that focuses on serial killers without seeing some of its influence from from things like Seven to, you know, any any number of TV shows like something like Criminal Minds or something. You can easily see the influence of that film and how it treated serial killers in a kind of a major way. It's still somehow only the second best movie released that year. Uh, so you know, if if Beauty and the Beast had won, it would very be very very high up in this this list. I have to say. But, you know, Silence of the Lambs, a, a wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, and it's, that's why it's in at number 10. Okay, at number 9, we have Milos Forman's Amadeus, released in 1984. Astounding. It was actually, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music. 
showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. Page after page of it, as if he were just taking dictation. Now, Amadeus was a movie that I came to with some scepticism. I think it was a movie that I always view I, I first kind of heard of around about the time that I had entered my that second phase of of my personal relationship to the Oscars which is that I assumed that any movie that was about Mozart and that was won best picture must kind of be this staid and stuffy historical drama you know it couldn't be you know, for it to win Best Picture, it couldn't be interesting. That was the kind of the, the thing that that's how Best Picture uh, became equated. That, that's how Best Pictures were interpreted in my mind. And uh, I have to say, I couldn't have been more wrong because Amadeus is a hugely enjoyable movie. And obviously, it's not really about Mozart. It's, it's about Salieri, played wonderfully by F. Murray Abraham in a, in a role that won him the Oscar for Best Leading Actor over his co-star Tom Hulse in, you know, a very close contest, but, you know, the best man won because his interpretation of Salieri is one of the all-time great movie villains and one of the great all-time movie heroes because, obviously, the movie is told from his perspective. It is his arc that is explored over the movie of, of a man growing up, not growing up, but, you know, existing in the shadow of his rival who uh, he rightly in in the kind of the world of the movie dismisses as an idiot and kind of a fool but who creates just the most scintillant scintillating and beautiful art that you could ever possibly encounter you know creates this kind of beautiful music and is gifted with this incredible god-given ability to make music but who is kind of a thoroughly undeserving vessel for that talent, yet still produces incredible works of art. And that is a kind of a fascinating dynamic to explore, and and Foreman and his cast explore it kind of fully. Uh, but they also, you know, they don't make something that's, like I say, they don't make something that's kind of stuffy and boring out of it. They make something that is dynamic and exciting and, and deeply moving and, and funny, you know, kind of uproariously funny. It's a very raucous movie, more so than you'd expect from a movie that get, that wins Best Picture and which flies by, you know, obviously the kind of movie it is, you know, a historical biopic, it, it's quite long and even though it is quite long, it flies by. It's just just wonderfully, um, wonderfully assembled and I think, you know, this is going to be a trend with the films that I've picked is you know, the, I think part of the reason why some of these movies endure and why they are genuinely great is that they're actually really entertaining. They don't feel like homework. Like, you'll maybe learn a little bit about Mozart, most of it a historical or made up for the movie, but, you know, you'll be exposed to Mozart and Salieri's music. But for the most part, you'll watch something that is a great character study and a great examination of a rivalry in which one where the, the two halves are very mismatched. One of them is very cunning, but not necessarily all that talented and one of whom is completely guileless but the, one of the most talented composers who ever lived uh, and that dynamic is fun to see explored through through Abrahams and Holtz's performances okay so now we'll go to number eight which is Woody Allen's Annie Hall released in 1977 I must say I always thought my schoolmates were idiots Melvin Greenglass you know his fat little face and Henrietta Farrell just miss perfect all the time and, and Ivan Ackerman Always the wrong answer. Always. Seven three is live. 
I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, which is some, uh, a relationship that becomes increasingly more complicated as the years go on, particularly, you know, obviously surrounding the various accusations against him and, and the creeping suspicion that always exists in mind that he is actually a monster, but uh, which is, you know, and that relationship wouldn't be so complicated if it weren't for the fact that he has made some of in my my opinion some of the greatest american movies of the last 30 or 40 years and even though annie hall is not my favorite of his movies during that period particularly you know the period from like 1975 when he did love and death through to 1992 with with husbands and wives i think that's a almost flawless run and particularly like the 80s where he was cranking out a movie a year pretty much and, and did just didn't stop and every one of them is at the very least interesting um you know i think if if i were to pick a favorite i pick something I, I would pick husbands and wives or radio days or crimes and misdemeanors but annie hall was the one that won best picture and is kind of the the deserved most deserving i think certainly you know looking back on it it does represent a a maturation of 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 his style like in terms of the dialogue there's not a huge amount separating it from from bananas or or sleeper or love and death you know there's lots of kind of obtuse literary references there's a kind of a a sense of kind of a Mar- a groucho marx style kind of verbosity to it you know there are all these things where you look at it and you think okay this is clearly a woody allen movie and not just because he's in it yeah even though those those elements remain and it's easy to see the connective tissue, they are kind of wedded to a story that is genuinely emotionally compelling and involving and relatable. You know, it is the story of a relationship told from beginning to end, from kind of humble, kind of awkward beginnings through to just kind of a, a kind of a sputtering out, you know, through the the fault of, of both of them, but but mainly through Alvy Singer. And even though it's a kind of a very formally inventive movie, you have things like him breaking the fourth wall, literally like from the very beginning to talk to the camera, but also doing things like grabbing Marshall McLuhan and, and dragging him to settle the argument when they're waiting to see a movie. And, you know, even though it has that sort of stuff, or visual jokes like when he goes to Annie's family home and he talks about the grandmother not liking him through uh, because he's Jewish, and she says, oh no, that's not at all. And then you see her perspective of him and he is, you know, the most rabbi rabbi who has ever existed you know that is you know that's very funny that's very woody allenish but but the the core of the movie is that relationship which is very human and very heartfelt and and real even though the movie does obviously take some some liberties with its sense of reality which is you know an incredible feat to make and why it remains one of the pinnacles of his career and and why you could see people kind of why people would have gone gaga for it in 1977 because after watching these incredibly manic comedies that he had made over the years and and knowing him as a a brilliant comedic writer and as a stand-up to see him make the shift into doing these this kind of what i guess would be termed dramedies nowadays um was you know a big a big shift and that's you can see why it would have impressed people do i think it deserved to win over star wars probably but it's very close you know star wars obviously is the one that ended up having the bigger impact but you know in quality wise it's hard to argue with with the brilliance of annie hall and at number seven we have joseph l mankowitz's all about eve which was released in 1950 so many people know me i wish i did i wish someone would tell me about me you're margo just margo what is that besides something Spelled out in light bulbs, I mean. Besides something called a temperament. 
which consists mostly of swooping about on a broomstick and screaming at the top of my voice. Infants behave the way I do, you know. They carry on and misbehave. They'd get drunk if they knew how, when they can't have what they want, when they feel unwanted or insecure or unloved. All About Eve is mainly at so high because it's one of the most entertainingly written and performed movies ever made i think the 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 story of 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 the of the movie of a of a kind of an older actress who is still relatively successful but whose career you get the sense is starting to go on the downturn befriending a younger actress who seems like such a big fan of hers and seems to want to be her friend and her confidant and being buoyed by that level of of reassurance and then that that character trying to supplant her and to kind of take her roles and things like that you know that is a great story there's a reason why the idea of an eve harrington type has become a trope in filmmaking and storytelling in general you can really see the idea of of that you know that's a incredibly compelling dynamic of of someone who plays it very close to their chest about how nefarious they are but over the course of the movie you realize oh yeah they are very nefarious and they are trying to supplant to replace this person in in kind of the public consciousness and so it's a great story but also it's just the way in which the story unfolds is is what's great about it which is you have these great performances you have betty davis who is amazing and has just the right level of outlandish campiness to it you know she's not being arch or, or kind of over the top for it but she is an actor playing an actress and someone who exists in a in a theatrical context and someone who is surrounded by theatre people and you know in around if you're surrounded by theatre people you're going to be a bit bigger than normal and and that's where a lot of the fun comes from when she says buckle your seatbelts we're in for a bumpy night you know it's funny but it's also you know something that feels organic to that world and and that's why it's really compelling and interesting because it it's so feel it feels so real obviously it's it's you know kind of an older movie so it there is a sense of unreality to it and a sense of artificiality to it but it still feels like a cohesive view of a very specific world and it recreate it creates a hermetically sealed universe i guess in a way that is rare to see and it also does it in a, like I say, a very entertaining way. It's very funny. It's a very lively movie. And it offers you the pleasure of watching great actors hurl great lines of dialogue at each other with a plum uh, tied to a story that is more complex and compelling than its initial kind of uh, its initial setting would seem. And, and that's kind of the, the reason why uh, I, I placed it quite so highly. Next, we have number six, which is Billy Wilder's The Apartment, released in 1960. You've got a Lulu. Huh? Yeah, better not get too close. I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Actually Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? Huh. Now, that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Should have stayed in bed this morning. He should have stayed in bed last night. Billy Wilder, to go into kind of a bit of my own personal history as a cinephile, Billy, Billy Wilder was one of the first directors who I came to love. Um, prior to discovering his work, I think like if you had asked me like for favourite directors, it'd be people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, where they had made movies that were just so key to my childhood that 
I just knew they were directors. They were the only directors I knew. I, I literally don't remember the time that I, I learned who Steven Spielberg was. It's like, I don't remember the time that I first discovered who the Beatles were. Like, as far as I'm concerned, I've always known the words to Yellow Submarine and I've always known who Steven Spielberg is. Like, there's just something about Mike that through cultural osmosis that I just know who he is and I knew that he was a director and I kind of knew what a director was. And then when the Star Wars movies were re-released in the, the late 90s and particularly when they were put out on the VHS box sets, which had a lot of supplementary material you know you watched the movie and then there was like half an hour of 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 documentaries which played immediately afterwards um i knew who george lucas was and what he did in terms of shaping that movie and so those were the the two guys i knew just because of the, the the movies that i'd grown up loving but when i went to uni I first kind of discovered Billy Wilder through Double Indemnity, which uh, was a movie I really, really liked. And then, like, I looked up his filmography on IMDb, as people want to do, and saw that he also directed Some Like It Hot, which I knew was kind of a, a critically acclaimed comedy that everyone knew. And so I sought that out, and I thought, oh, that's, that was really good. And then, you know, bought box sets of his films and just kind of worked my way through them. And The Apartment was the one of his that has really stuck with me. It's the one that I would consider one of my favourite movies of all time because its comedic sensibility is so in tune with what I like in comedy which is that it's very very funny there's there's a lot of variety of of humor in it you know there's there's kind of verbal jokes there's visual gags um there's jokes just told through the way in which the film is assembled and edited and even through shot composition particularly in kind of the depiction of of Jack Lemmon's work where you see where they make it look like he has one desk on a floor in an office that has an infinite number of desks you know uh, there are kind of very clever jokes in just the the style of the movie Um, but there's also kind of a melancholy to it it's a very deeply sad and in some ways depressing movie and the kind of center of the Venn diagram between really funny and really sad is is something that I that is the sweet spot for me that is what I really really enjoy you know that is something that I can find very very nourishing and you know I think The Apartment is one of the best films at at balancing that tone Uh, and it also you know it made me a fan of Jack Lemmon who I had obviously seen in Some Like It Hot before and who I knew in a roundabout way through The Simpsons through because he voiced a character on it but also because the character of Gil is so obviously based on his character in Glengarry Glen Ross so he but but The Apartment was the one that really introduced me to the range of his emotions because you see him there playing both kind of this kind of daffy comedic thing so you see him straining spaghetti for a tennis racket which is obviously a very funny visual but you know at the same time the film makes you realize it's a character point the fact that he is this guy who really has nothing going for him kind of financially or personally so that's he and he has become the kind of person who strains spaghetti for a tennis racket Uh, and Shirley MacLaine is is wonderful in the movie as well uh, Fred McMurray is great as the kind of the straight man who also gets a few good zingers in, uh, and it's just this this wonderful cockeyed romance movie, you know, you know, where you know the the feelings of Jack Lemmon are not at least they're not initially, where the feelings of Jack Lemmon for Shirley MacLaine are not reciprocated immediately, and obviously he. Uh, enters into this kind of complicated relationship where he's in love with her but also he is loaning his apartment out to his boss so that his boss can use it for trysts with her and you know it's this very deeply kind of sad situation that he's found himself in Uh, and Wilder and Lemon do a wonderful job of exploring all the permutations of that that situation and of 
that central relationship and it's just just a really kind of beautiful delicate movie in in terms of the way in which it balances its pathos and its humor in a way which doesn't become mawkish or cynical you know like which is the the, the sweet spot for billy wilder in general you know some of his movies are you get things like ace in the hole which is just the most hard bitten and bleak movie ever or you get something like Irma la douce which is just a little too kind of saccharine even though it's kind of set in the world of of prostitutes in paris you know the 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 the, the best area for him is is something like the apartment or even something like sunset boulevard where there's a, a great sense of comedy and there's some light and optimism in it but also you know that the sadness and the cynicism is allowed to rear its head and and to kind of under underpin everything uh but the the apartment is for for that and many of the reasons that's why it's my sixth favorite best picture winner of all time okay so now on to number five which is william wyler's the best years of our lives released in 1946 this is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I've never really gotten on with war movies, or at least not a particular kind of war movie, which would be the war movies that are kind of very gung-ho and daring do, and particularly the, the older forms that you see coming up in like the 40s and the 50s and 60s. The pre-Vietnam war movies that tried to make the idea of going to war and particularly going to war in world war Two seemed like this kind of very brave and glamorous thing that people went off and did and, and even though it was a very noble cause they tend to fudge the details when it comes to kind of the brutality and the horror of it all which is why something like saving private ryan or, or even hacksaw ridge this year which is a movie that's deeply flawed and i don't like in a lot of ways you know movies that acknowledge that war is terrible and violent and horrible and people get horribly injured in terrible terrible ways is more in line with my personal philosophy and sensibility which is the war sometimes it's necessary sometimes it's a noble crusade that you go on to to save the world in 99% of all other cases it's a waste of human life and it's an awful tragedy uh, and you know apart from really it's just world war Two. other than world war Two, there aren't really any good wars uh, and everything else and most war movies about world war Two in particular and those world and most war movies ignore that fact and even the ones about world war Two, which acknowledge that it's noble don't acknowledge that all even a good cause leaves broken people behind uh, and that's i think one of the reasons why the best years of our lives is so remarkable because not only is it a movie entirely about the effects of the war and what it did to the people who fought in it and and the ones who risked their lives and did incredible brave things it's back it came out the year after the war ended you know this isn't some revisionist take that's made in like the 70s where it's like you know it was a, a really great thing but everyone you know got really fucked up by it you know it's not looking back on it it is literally the the year after the war ended made by william wyler who flew with the air force in world war Two as part of the, the um 
the the cinema core or, or whatever it's called the the division of the army that was there making documentaries and 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 went out into the shit uh and and he lost his hearing as a result of being next to the engines of the plane so he came back as a broken kind of physically but also emotionally and psychologically you know like a lot of men he he suffered as a result of his experiences in the war and what you see through the three characters that the the movie follows played by Friedrich March Dana Andrews and Harold Russell in particular you you see those dis- different aspects of the experiences of soldiers returning played out you see the way in which their experiences leave them distant from their their family members unable to integrate into society in the case of Harold Russell who was a a veteran of World War II who lost both of his hands in a in a training accident where they were both blown off by a hand grenade you know you see him exhibit the fit the vulnerabilities that comes along with that you know he has these two hooks for hands and in one kind of beautiful scene he demonstrates the difficulty of how it is of of how difficult it is to get dressed when you just have these hooks how you have to kind of put the straps on yourself and that level of vulnerability is is one of the reasons why he ended up winning two oscars for that role in the same movie you know he he won he was given a, a honorary one saying, you know, for your bravery and for fighting and also for doing this role. And then he also won Best Supporting Actor, you know, the first and only person in history to win two Oscars for the same role in the same movie, which is, is incredible. But he does a great performance, particularly as a non-actor, to show the pain and the effects of, of coming back from war broken by your experiences. And that's that's one of the reasons why the movie, I think, that's, that's the movie in microcosm, you know, William Wyler depicted the 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 the, with a a kind of an honesty that is rare in general but particularly kind of for the 1940s this this emotional honesty about what the war did to him and to the people that he thought with and even though it at no point loses sight of the fact that what the war was for and and its results were good fundamentally you know the defeat of fascism the, the defeat of the nazis it was still hard and it still did terrible things to the people who who took part in it and and that is uh you know a noble in its own way and also the movie is like a lot of great hollywood movies it's entertaining the characters are fun the the, the there's lots of there's jokes and there's things like that even though it's a deeply serious movie about deeply serious things you know it's it's kind of fun and lively uh and it's just a really incredible piece of work and and also um as a, as an aside um if anyone is interested in the making of that movie which you should be because it's a fantastic story you should really check out mark harris's book five came back which is a book about five directors who left their hollywood careers behind in order to enlist in the army and to go out and help in the war effort people like john ford john houston william wyler who you know just mentioned george stevens and frank capra these five guys who were all very successful hollywood directors who signed up for the to, to take part in the in the war effort and were all changed by it in in different ways so you see someone like john houston who ended up with really bad kind of emotional problems as a result of it and and someone like george stevens who prior to the war was renowned for directing kind of fairly light-hearted comedies was the guy who filmed the the you know auschwitz and the concentration camps and after that didn't make comedies anymore you know he he saw just the absolute worst thing that you could have possibly see and you know, made a lot of kind of very serious and 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 deep dark movies as a result, and uh, it's a fascinating book which I would recommend to everyone. And it's also being turned into a documentary series, which is airing on Netflix next month, I believe, on the thirty first of March. 
But that's beside the point. It's just a really, really great book, and I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating documentary series. Speaking of Frank Capra, we have one of his films at number four. It is It Happened One Night, which was released in 1934. Uh, perhaps you're interested in how a man undresses. You know, there's a funny thing about that. Quite a study in psychology. No two men do it alike. You know, I once knew a man who kept his hat on until he was completely undressed. Yeah, now he made a picture. Years later, his secret came out. He wore a toupee. Yeah. You know, I have a method all my own. Uh, if you'll notice, the coat came first, then the tie, then the shirt. Now, uh, according to Hoyle, after that, the uh, pants should be next. There's where I'm different. I go for the shoes next. First the right, and the left. After that, it's uh, every man for himself. One of the kind of constant refrains you hear now, nowadays, in terms of, you know, people talking about box office and the performances of movies is the idea that we don't have movie stars anymore that the you know that the last generation of movie stars people like tom hanks tom cruise denzel washington julia roberts they're all kind of aging out of the point where they can open a movie to huge numbers and guarantee success in the way that they could more or less in in the 90s and the 80s and and that this idea of a movie star as someone that you can just build a movie around regardless of subject and people will come and watch it is more or less done that none of the kind of upcoming class of people have that level of draw you know that that the thing that matters is concepts and franchises and things like that and you know there's there's some merits to that argument uh, uh but you know the the most kind of clear sense of that is is what when you watch kind of older movies starring kind of older movie stars and you really get a sense that what was important to the star system and and hollywood in the older days when my movie stars could make or break movies um when when you could like cast tom cruise in something and say okay it's just top gun but cars and we call it days of thunder and it will be reasonably successful um and, and going further back than that obviously the the sense that you really get from that is is you know one of the appeals of of old school movie stars was just seeing beautiful people who are very charismatic playing off of each other on screen and that being enough you know the story of a movie may not be that exciting or original but if you have the right chemistry between two stars you get something really 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 wonderful and that is is kind of one of the reasons why it happened one night really kind of stands out to me because you have Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert who are two wonderful actors who you know do who kind of play off each other wonderfully in a story that's fairly generic as far as romances go you know there's an heiress who's on the run a newspaper man follows her to try and get the scoop you know it's, it's kind of fairly standard stuff but the dialogue is so lovely and those two characters those two actors are so charming and charismatic and make it so much more fascinating through their mere presence on screen that you you really get a sense of what a movie star brings to a movie which is that they make the material more interesting just through their their presence on screen and that is that is that is not nothing that is a skill that is hard to cultivate it may not even be possible to cultivate it maybe is something that people are just born with or, or something that just comes from an innate just from something that you just kind of pick up along the way and that can't be taught in an acting school uh, and uh, i think that's that's one of the reasons why it happened one night um kind of why it lasts you know uh you know it was a movie that at the time 
you know broke a record for being the the first film to win all five major oscars which were director picture actor actress and screenplay the other two being the the science of the lambs which you know already mentioned and one flew over the cuckoo's nest both of which you know did 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 that um that that particular feat but the thing that stops all of those movies from being just mere footnotes is that they're all often driven by by great performances but they're also kind of really fun and even though one uh it happened one night came out in 1934 and if you were to show it to kind of a group of of, of young people like people in their 20s now people whose grandparents weren't even born when the movie came out you know you can still find something huge to enjoy in it you know it's a funny movie it is and and even though there's a certain degree of creakiness and things like that, you know, the the the, the writing is still pretty sharp and the performances are still great, and and that's one of the reasons why, for me, it it shines. You know, like 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 the rest of these, a lot of these movies, it's fun. It's a really fun, entertaining film, and and that as much as you know the kind of craft and and everything else goes into it, what lasts, I think, from a movie, what makes people remember it is the, the, the sense that you can just revisit it and you know every time you'll come away with the same kind of range of emotions. You know, it may not be positive emotions. In, in one, it happened one night, it is. But, you know, that sense that you can see something and, and you are getting, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is something that is, is kind of valuable, I think. And number three, we have... David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia, which was released in 1962. You'll do that once too often. It's only flesh and blood. Michael George Hartley, you're a philosopher. And you're balmy. Oh! It damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Uh, David Lean directed two movies which won Best Picture, the other one being The Bridge on the River Kwai, which won in, in 1957, and a bunch of his other movies were nominated for Best Picture as well. But for me, what Lawrence of Arabia has over those of, over Bridge on the River Kwai and, and over the rest of his kind of the epic movies that he became known for is is the character of T. Lawrence and the performance of Peter O'Toole in that role, and and Peter O'Toole represents that rare thing which is like a movie star, which he undoubtedly was because he was like a beautiful, like man, like an incredibly striking presence. You know, you couldn't take your eyes off of him, but he was also a great actor. You know, as even though all he needed to kind of grab your attention was to be on screen he could suggest so much just through a glance of the set of his jaw you know he could suggest so many things about the inner life of a character and in the case of T.E. Lawrence you know a character whose story you follow over many years and over a huge swathe of territory you really do get a sense of the external journey mirroring his internal struggle as as a person and the film very rarely verbalizes the thing that he's going through or his his growing obsessions and his kind of drive to to do things but you know it's all there in in what in the way that peter at all carries himself and that that is something that is very hard to to convey and and he does a, a wonderful job about it but but what really strikes me about lawrence of arabia is it's one of those movies where it's almost impossible to f- imagine it being made 
it's hard to imagine that people went through the more quotidian states of assembling the movie like you can't imagine people rehearsing it you can't imagine people kind of waiting for the light to rewrite you can't even imagine people sitting down to editing it even though Anvi Coates who ad- edited it did an amazing job you know the the match cut of the of Lawrence blowing out the match to the the sun is one of the great match cuts literally a match cut in cinema history you know it's up there with the bone turning into the spaceship in 2001 a space odyssey uh, and the film itself just in terms of the broader concept of what editing does for a movie it's beautifully paced you know it's a long movie but you know it doesn't feel it, it, you feel the enormity of it but you don't feel like it's dragging its feet you know it, it moves at exactly the right pace for the story it's telling so something like Omar Sharif very slowly coming towards the camera you know that is allowed to unfurl at a very leisurely pace but it's the right length of that that, that his introduction needs to be uh, and the the that is its own kind of genius on Anvi Coates' part to know exactly how long that moment needs to be to really have the impact that, that David Lean wanted. But, you know, the, the whole movie, it just feels like something that was found, like someone was dynamiting a mountain and when they excavated it out, they found a cave and in that cave was a film reel and on that film reel was Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, it just feels kind of elemental, you know. It's like 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 something like Apocalypse Now has the same feel, you know. Apocalypse Now, we know it was made because there's a million great stories about how Apocalypse Now was made. But when you watch it, it's hard to imagine humans having the the vision to create this movie, and and that's what for me, Lawrence of Arabia has in spades. It's visionary. It's enveloping you know it's the sort of movie that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible and that's kind of one of my great kind of hopes in life I guess as far as film watching goes is that I'll one day get the opportunity to watch the movie on a big fucking screen because it it's a movie of such tremendous scope and scale uh, that you don't really get that sense of it even from the biggest home theatre setup uh, but what you do get a sense of is, is its brilliance as a character study uh, and and that's one of the things that kind of makes it stand out is it is this it, even though it's a, a very grand story that takes place over a huge uh, that tells a big story it is grounded in the intimate story of one man and, and that to me the contrast between a sustained focus on one man's journey and kind of huge epic action sequences that take place in kind of beautiful locales are it is is incredible and that's why it stands out in David Lean's filmography because it's kind of a a great combination of the two halves of his career you know his intimate small-scale British movies and it's his huge American films and and just of epic filmmaking in general the the sort of thing that was happening in the 50s and the 60s in Hollywood where they tried to make movies as big as possible but they they very rarely had a central figure as as compelling as T.E. Lawrence or a character a actor as compelling as Peter at all and at number two we have Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather we've known each other many years but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel for help I can't remember the last time that you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. Even though my wife is godmother to your only child. But let's be frank, you, you never wanted my friendship. And uh, 
you were afraid to be my dad. Now, I struggled to choose whether or not to put The Godfather or The Godfather Part 2 in the top ten, and I, or to have them kind of both in, or to have them have occupy as a single entry, which I felt to be intellectually dishonest. But in the end, I settled on The Godfather on its own, because as much as I do love the second one, and it's great, it's obviously one of the great sequels ever made, it's... I, I, I think I respond to the cleanness of the narrative of the first one as as wonderfully complicated as the time jumping flashback structure of the second one is it's you know there's something about that clean narrative of the first one and that sense of of a, of a complete story being told even though obviously it wasn't because they they made two more movies but you know it has the same feel as the first star wars versus empire strikes back the second film is is more complicated and 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 richer in a lot of ways because of your experience of watching the first movie but on its own it needs the first movie to be as to be great if you if you see what i mean like you know you couldn't what you could watch godfather part two in isolation on its own and you would you would get a great movie but you really need to the first movie to to and to feel the full richness of it so i feel like the first one deserves to be included just because as a as a single work it feels more complete um and you know it's it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing work of, of of filmmaking it's a a maturation i guess of the the gangster genre um which obviously was something that hollywood had been making for decades people they've been making a gangster movies for a very long time but you know the, what was unique about it was it was made from by an Italian American, which was was a novelty, starring Italian American actors, which was something again that was a novelty, and you know it has a sense of of realness to it. You know, it's a story of the mafia and of a family, and even though, like the character types in it, like you have the the son who doesn't want to go into the family business, you have the the older son who's kind of a hothead, you have the son who's kind of weasley and incompetent you have kind of a surrogate son these are all character types who you could imagine being in a great american novel like you know like the magnificent ambersons or something a story about old moneyed um individuals who you know exist in kind of a big house and who have mining concerns or whatever but it doesn't it takes place in the world of the mafia and crime families so people are getting murdered and people making actual life and death decisions and you have the emotional complexity of a great novel about you know kind of people interacting with each other against these that these really brutal crime elements delivered in a in a way which is you know with a level of, of violence and sophistication that a lot of those earlier gangster movies didn't have and you know that that two layers of it of, of it being a fa- about a family and being about a business and being about the mafia and and being about you know the promise of america in many ways that's that's the thing that really strikes you is it's a movie that operates on so many levels and, and like you know like going to Lawrence of arabia it's the sort of movie that even though you could imagine people making it it's it's kind of hard to imagine that there was ever anyone so brilliant as francis ford coppola was in 1972 to take all of those disparate elements and disparate themes and make them into a supremely entertaining movie and one that ends so brilliantly that that for me is is kind of the deciding factor as well in in putting this in over part two is i do feel like the last 20 minutes or so of the godfather and then you know you go through the the, the, the cross-cutting between the christening and all of the murders and then uh, and Michael closing the door on Kay. You know, it's just beautiful visual storytelling and, and you know, it, it redefined 
what a gangster movie could be and and changed the way in which that entire genre was viewed so much to the extent that you know within the next 20 years you get things like like Bugsy which we mentioned earlier or or Goodfellas or The Sopranos you know it, it added a level of sophistication to a genre that previously had never been treated with that level of intelligence and finally in first place we have Michael Curtiz's Casablanca I'm no good at being noble but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. You know, what what new is there to say about Casablanca? It's one of the great... It's the great Hollywood movie, you know, in terms of the way the studio system works, you know, and, and it's... And even though it had a troubled production, you know, Matt and I in the past have talked about this, how you can't judge a movie based on the stories about how it was made, you know, just because a movie is being reshot or rewritten doesn't mean it's going to turn out bad. And and Casablanca is probably the ultimate example of that. It's a movie that didn't get its first director, went in without much of a finished script, was constantly being rewritten, had a lot of different writers come on and work at various different points. And it still turned into this great, romance and and you know not merely is it a great romance but you know it historically you know it was made in 1942 in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor it was coming out as America was really gearing up its war efforts to to take part in World War II it was made by Michael Curtiz who was a uh, an emigrant from I believe Hungary and whose family some of his family had 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 fled from the Nazis so you know I think it's even though the story is one of a kind of a romance between these two great characters played by great actors played by you know by Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman there's a there's an urgency to it I think on Curtiz's part of you know someone who probably over the last couple of years had had at some point said hey to to anyone who would listen you know you need to take part in this conflict you know you may not want to you may want to stay out you may think it doesn't concern you but at some point it will and that is something that comes through in the movie there's an urgency to it there's a moral imperative you you know you get a sense that 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 rick doesn't want to get involved in the war but on some level he he does think that it's kind of a noble cause and his slow edging towards wanting to 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 help and to be a part of the war again uh, even if it's just for romantic reasons is is wonderful to see and you know just you know like every like a lot of great hollywood movies from that period it's funny it's got great music it's got it's wonderfully shot it's it's wonderfully assembled and it's just a just a, a fantastic work of of cinema you know there there's there's th- there's pluses and minuses about the the hollywood system you know it destroyed a lot of people's lives you know the old studio system the way in which movies were made maybe wasn't the most conducive to personal expression but you know the the machine the factory worked from time to time it produced great great things and and casablanca for me is pretty much the pinnacle of hollywood filmmaking as i'm sure it is for a lot of other people that's not a unique perspective and you know for that reason it's also the best best picture okay thank you for listening to this minisode that in no way was a minisode (laughs) ended up being longer than i think some regular episodes but i'm i'm considering it a minisode purely because i don't have any guests and i find it weird to consider episodes in which it's just me talking on my own kind of canonical but there will be a proper canonical episode almost exactly the same length as this episode out next week where it won't just be me Uh, i'll be joined by 
by two guests to talk about one of my very favourite television shows, a show that's very near and dear to my heart, which is celebrating a very crucial anniversary next week. So that's a guessing game for you if you want to try and figure it out. It's not that difficult if you just look at my Twitter feed over the last week or so. It should be pretty easy for you to guess which one it is. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the show, then please write, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes or write a review. Writing a review is particularly useful because uh, if reviews get more subscribers, you know, it makes iTunes pay more attention to us in, in the algorithms and things like that. So, you know, write a review if you haven't already, and it really helps us to find a bigger audience. You can also find us on our website, which is srspodcast.com. And on Facebook, I'm starting to try and use the Facebook and Twitter accounts in a slightly more active way. Up until this point, we've mainly just used it to post links to the episodes. But I think in the future, and and more recently as well, but in future, we're going to try and use it to post interesting writing about film. Not by me, that would be super solipsistic, but good stuff that's out there in the internet. You know, try and curate content and kind of offer it up. So if you haven't liked the Facebook page before, then... Uh, do it now and see uh, hopefully in the coming weeks there'll be kind of more stuff that way Uh, and the twitter account is at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with a full proper episode again about the same length as this one but until then it's goodbye from me